0: I hope you'll take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. It's page 827 in these Bibles in the pews. Today is Palm Sunday, we call it such uh, because it began the last week or so, the last several days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And he arrived in Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy on that Sunday of that week, the first day of the week. And the people shouted Hosanna, which meant save now. They spread palm branches in the road before him. Uh, The crowd believed he was going to set up his earthly kingdom and uh, break the back of the Roman imperialists who were occupying Jerusalem. The crowds were happy. The Jewish leaders were furious. We read earlier that they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for allowing this kind of praise to go on. And as uh, he was entering the city and he said, I tell you that if these are silent, the stones will cry out. The Jewish leader's anger only uh, intensifies. Now we go to Monday, and on Monday he re-enters Jerusalem. He, he goes in, he casts the money changers out of the temple. He calls them robbers, and he says that this is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a, a robber's den. And he teaches, uh, and he teaches parables primarily because of an objection that's raised in the form of a question that was really really not a question wanting an answer and that is who gives you the authority to do these things and to say these things they did not really want an answer it was to provoke a fight so in response to that question who gives you the authority basically who th- who do you think you are Jesus tells some parables and this is one of the parables it's called the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked vine growers and it begins in verse thirty-three, if you'll follow along as I read it, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are weighty words. And we pray that you would give us understanding and application to our lives. That we would not just be hearers of the word merely, but doers also. In Christ's name, amen. This was my... uh, first time to study this passage uh, i have heard this parable many times but i've never taught it i've never preached from it and i chose it some time ago because it yeah, i knew it was during the last week of Jesus' ministry and when i began to read it over and over i had a problem because it just seemed so over the top but what i mean is most of the other parables the good samaritan The woman seeking for the lost coin the shepherd seeking the lost sheep those seem realistic true stories perhaps but they could be true stories when I got to this one I was like wait tenants killing the servants who come to collect what they'd agreed on and then murdering the man's son I just it, it, it didn't honestly it didn't make a lot of sense to me until until I began to dig and find out that there was a cultural expectation, if not a law, that greatly influences what was happening in this parable. I'm going to tell it to you in just a moment, but I think it will tie together what happens. The characters in the parable are very easily identifiable the landowner is God, the vineyard is the nation of Israel, the tenants are the religious leaders that we're asking the questions of who gives you this authority, among others. The servants are the prophets of the Old Testament and into the New with John the Baptist. And then the son, of course, is Jesus. And once again, this parable, along with some others, is prompted by the complaint, who gives you the authority to do and say these things? Let me just retell you the parable, very briefly. This landowner has a plot of land. He decides to plant a vineyard on it. He goes and he spends all his money, his time, he builds a wine press, he builds a fence around it to protect it from uh, animals and so forth that could come in to get the grapes, and he builds a tower so that at harvest time they could have a lookout for those that might plan to steal from them or to rob from them. Uh, He hires uh, these sharecroppers in a sense, these tenants to come and that apparently knew what they were doing to raise grapes there. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and this helps understand it, so I've read, and seemed to make sense, it was credible, that a vineyard from scratch takes about four years before it becomes productive. That's very important here. A lot of time passes before it gets to the point where the owner says, I'd like basically payment for the fruit of the grapes. I I want what's coming to me. Secondly, there was, and this is what really affects the interpretation, there was a custom, if not a law at the time, if an owner hired out some leased out land for these tenants to, to uh, crop, to, to farm, if he stayed away, for, or she, for a certain amount of time, and they had worked the land and invested themselves in it, done their labor, not received what was coming to them, after three years, they could appeal to take possession of the land. So what's very important in this parable is, as Jesus tells it, he says the owner does all this, plants, wall, winepress, tower, hires them, and goes to a faraway country, goes to another country. That is a key detail. The owner has vacated, in a sense, the vineyard. He is not there, and that's, that's crucial to understanding this. So I've learned. The harvest time typically would come about the fifth year. So a lot of time has passed. A lot of work has been done. So the landowner uh, sends servants, of, uh, a small band of servants, to collect uh, the, the money from the, the first fruits that, that have now become productive. Uh, and the tenants decide, we're not giving you any money. In fact, they kill. They kill some of them, beat up the other. The owner's very patient we don't know how much time passes but then sends another delegation a larger delegation same reaction and then he thinks well surely they will respect my son but they don't and they kill him and they kill him by saying here's the son he is the heir he's the he would be the heir to this vineyard let's kill him and in doing so we can take his inheritance which was the vineyard the first part of the parable, the people listening to Jesus probably would have emotionally sided with the tenants. But as it goes along, the religious leaders, and they give the answer. What will the owner do to these tenants? Well, he'll, he'll bring judgment on them. Swift retribution. They realize he's talking about them toward the end. Okay, what are some, some principles here? One, it's obviously God is the one who established the vineyard. Jesus makes it clear the vineyard belongs to the master of the house. He plants it. He puts the fence there. He puts the wine press. He builds the tower. There's no question who owns the vineyard. And the vineyard was the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. You'll say, How do you, why do you say that? Because that's the theme through the Old Testament. And it was very clear in Isaiah chapter 5 where Israel is likened to a vineyard that God planted and it failed to produce fruit. Here's what Isaiah 5 verses 1 and 2 uh, say. I will sing to the one. I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it. He cut out a winepress as well and then he looked for good grapes, but he found none. They would have known that passage. So when Jesus started, there was an owner who had a vineyard, and they would have immediately connected with Isaiah chapter 5. They would have known. He's talking about Israel there. Of all the people in the world, why God chose Israel, why he chose that people, the Jewish people, to bless in a very particular way, we're never told. It's not because they are anyway any way morally superior or were big and powerful. He started with one man named Abraham. And he said, your lineage is going to outnumber the, the sand on the seashore, outnumber the stars that you can see up in the sky. Psalm 147 says, he has not dealt thus with any nation. And so he gives them these covenants of promise. They're citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. He blesses them with numerous privileges that others did not have. He gives them a land that in the ancient world was like a major international highway. But if you were traveling from Asia or if you were traveling from north of the Mediterranean, you had to go through that part of the world to get to Africa. And he gave them priests and others to lead them. And so they were his vineyard, and he did it to look for fruit. They were to bear fruit for him. So the first thing is God is the owner. Second is, are the tenants. Why did they kill the servants? As I mentioned, cultural law allowed tenants to possess the land if the owner had gone away for so many years. For all they knew, he had died. There's no indication there'd been any communication after the initial hiring of the tenants. But as the listeners and that were hearing this parable, they realized Jesus is referring to the prophets that God had sent to his vineyard to Israel— and some of the prophets they had killed for example Zechariah was murdered between the temple and the altar we read in second chronicles chapter 24 how are we like these people i mean there's an application for them then there's an application for us now we we see their sin the sin represented in the parable of the tenants or of the people of Israel that rejected God's messengers and yet we see how sin is irrational did they really think they were going to get away with killing those servants? Did they really think they would get away with killing the son? Well, apparently they did think so, at least for the moment. But that's the nature of sin. Sin is irrational. In your life, in my life, it is foolish. And it deceives us. As one person wrote, everywhere today sin is glamorized. Evil is sugar-coated. It seems that we can easily get away with wrongdoing." You ever try to talk to a young person about why sex ought to be saved till marriage? You know what makes it so hard to talk about that? Or not to talk about it, but to try to convince them that if they don't have that conviction? Because there's no immediate result. It's not like something bad happens immediately. I mean, there are very few sins that if you commit, immediately will bring some kind of, of terrible result on your life. Oh, murder... Yes, I mean, some of the outward things, stealing might, depending on where and when. But so many others, uh, what, what you can become addicted to, with pornography or, or, or promiscuity or whatever, and it, they don't bring any kind of bad immediate results normally. And so we think there are no bad results. You're, you're, just relax. Everything's okay. It's alluring. You know what Proverbs 9, verse 17 says, stolen water is sweet. It may even taste good at the, at the moment. You may think, oh, this is wonderful. There's no judgment. What was I fearing? This is, this is right. And they apparently felt that way and thought that way, but it's a pack of lies. And yet we see here God is patient. He's patient with us. He was patient with them. We can reject his authority. We ignore his blessings. And yet, he continues to be patient. So we're like the tenants, wanting what is not lawfully ours. When Isaiah 53 says, All of us, speaking of all of us, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Romans says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can easily, just, it's fascinating, at the end of the parable, when when he comes to the conclusion after they've killed the son, he asks them, what should be done? What do you think the owner is going to do to those tenants who've carried this out? They all know the answer. He's going to bring swift retribution. When we see our sin in another person, we can quickly say, well, here's what's wrong with it. Or don't you realize what you're doing? And yet we may be doing the same things. Even David, King David, after committing adultery, and he's now nine months have passed. He's not repentant. The baby's born from the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. The baby's born, and God sends a prophet named Nathan to David. And you remember, Nathan tells him a story. He says, hey, there was this family, a very poor family. They have children, and they have this little lamb. And the lamb they loved, it was like the pet of the family. And here's this wealthy person over here, this powerful person. He's got all sorts of flocks, all sorts of animals. And he decides to give a special feast, a special banquet. And what does he do? He goes over and he, he, takes, he takes the lamb from the poor family and butchers it and serves it when he's got all sorts of animals that he could use for that. And David basically says, uh, uh, says, that man should be punished. Punishment should be brought on that man. He sees clearly what's wrong. And Nathan, you remember, says, you're the man. You're the man, David. Look at how God has blessed you what do you do you take the wife of a a soldier of a man who had nothing were you not satisfied with what god had given to you and so often we can see sin clearly in another person's life but we fail to see it in ourselves so there there are the tenants then we see the murder of the son when jesus speaks of the landowner's son being killed by the tenants obviously it's prophetic It's prophetic for what will happen about four or five days later. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. It will not be an accident. He's going to be put to death. So this is very prophetic. This parable is called a prophetic parable. And his words now are directed against the leaders of the people. They had rejected the prophets of old. They had rejected John the Baptist. And now they're going to reject him as well. So back to the question, who gives you the authority to say these things? He's saying, I'm the son that's been sent here by the landowner, and you're going to kill him. Isaiah 53, I was quoting a moment ago, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Also, we see the rejection and exaltation of the cornerstone. As he's addressing the crowd uh, there at the end, verse 42 and, and following, he quotes from Psalm 118. They could have chanted it. They would have been able to sing it. They knew this by heart. The phrase there from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So it was very familiar words to them. And here, here's the main idea, and it's used elsewhere in the Bible. In those days with, uh, with, with buildings and, and construction, obviously to keep things square and level, you needed a starting place, a, a perfect angle. That stone then would be worked on and cut and everything would be lined up. Once that was put down, the walls and so forth would all come from there. Do you see that white box? Way up in the, Y'all see that? I can see it. Can you see it? See right in the corner. See that little white thing sticking out? Does anybody see it? Okay. Th- oh, thank you. One nod. Okay. Between. If you look up right before where the blue paint is, you come down about three feet, you'll see that white thing. Now, every sermon, y'all are going to be just staring up there wondering. You know what that is? Somebody asked me once, Is that a camera? I said, no and i found out from some of our engineering and architectural people this well this is not a good date this building was hit by a tornado many years ago and it moved it because of that there was expansion and and movement in the rafters that is a measuring device that shoots a beam back to the same one in that corner so they whoever they are there's this secret group that apparently checks the measurements to make sure that every, am i right on this larry is that a general idea i know from engineers are probably cringing all right in a sense that's like a cornerstone the cornerstone then since they didn't have high tech like this you had to get that stone just right to line up the walls and and to make sure that everything was square and plumb and level now here's the simple picture the builders are getting ready to build a building uh, let, let's say it was a larger, larger than a house let's, let's say it was like Solomon's temple and the, the idea is that the, here's the cornerstone it's been prepared uh, the, the mathematicians and others they've got it just right now it's got to be put in place but the builders come along and say oh we don't need that let's just start here and they push aside the cornerstone and they build a building and guess what it's, it's disastrous. It's not square. It, it, uh, the walls aren't right. Nothing's right. The ceiling, the roof, the flooring, uh, cracks develop. And so they've hurt themselves by rejecting the cornerstone. And so as the psalm says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, speaking of himself. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. So to reject Christ, to reject him, is to reject the most important thing that we can build our life on. He shifted the imagery from the tenants who rejected the servants to the builders who rejected the stones. And the tenants, by killing the son, destroyed themselves. And the builders, by laying aside the stone which became the cornerstone, made themselves look foolish. A couple of words of application in closing. What is the point of the parable? Most of the commentaries I looked at and others said you can't get away from the patience of God in this. Why did the landowner wait and send a second delegation after they had killed the first servants? That's his patience. We don't know how much time passed. Months? Year? And then he waits. Then after they killed them, he sends his son he had waited the patience of God over and over and over. God is patient. Even when they kill the prophets in the Old Testament, God is patient. Now, we can misinterpret that to think that, well, that means he's not involved, Bob, or he doesn't care, or he doesn't exist, or he's never going to do anything. And yet, we're warned in Second Peter The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is patient. He's patient. And yet, second application, it's not too late to repent. This is a merciful warning by by Christ. He is warning. It's not only him saying what's getting ready to happen, what has happened in the past, the tenants killing the messengers, and the, 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 the servants, they're getting ready to kill the son. But he's not, he's, he's basically warning them. You can still repent. It is a merciful warning. God is patient, but that patience is not everlasting. There'll be a time when it comes to an end and judgment will be swift. 2 Peter 3, the next verse, I read the one about he's slow about his promise, but then it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there will come a time, as one writer said, God's patience is, is lasting, but it's not everlasting. It will come to an end last this passage this parable should give encouragement to those who are faithful followers of christ what do i mean if we stop halfway through the story it would be awful if we did not know the rest of the story it would look like a complete tragedy the tenants have have destroyed everything and the the landowner was powerless and we can get the impression that, boy, I know the kingdom of God is supposed to expand, but as I look around, it sure doesn't look like it's expanding to me. If anything, it looks like it's shrinking. And Christians today, especially here in the West, are viewed as threats and uh, just out of step with everyone else, and you don't want one of them around. Let me tell you what's going on, though, in other parts of the world. Now, I've had an interest in missions since I started walking with Christ. And I love to read about things going on with the progress of the gospel elsewhere. And you should know, if you don't read this kind of stuff, that since 1970, just almost 50 years, over the past years, there has been a larger geographical redistribution of those who claim to be Christians, a larger global redistribution geographically more so than at any time in church history except within the very beginning of the church in the New Testament all within the past 50 years for example it has brought unprecedented, past 50 years since 1970 there's been unprecedented movement of where God is working in the world for example in China in 1970 there were no legal functioning churches in China, a country of a billion people. Then what happened? In 1971, the communist regime allowed for one Protestant church and one Roman Catholic Church to hold services, primarily because of they did it as a concession to visiting European and African students, which came from Tanzania and Zambia. But last Sunday, 50 years since then, last Sunday, there were more likely more Christians in worship services in China than in all of so called Christian Europe. Last Sunday, there were more Anglicans who attended church, the Church of England, more Anglicans attended church in Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda than all of the Anglicans in Great Britain and in Canada, and we're going to throw the Episcopalians in the United States in there too, more attended in those African countries than all these others combined. More Anglicans there in Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda gathered than all the Anglicans in Britain, Canada, and the Episcopalians in the United States together. This past Sunday there were more Presbyterians in church in the country of Ghana than in Scotland, where Presbyterianism began. And there were more in the congregations of the uniting Presbyterian church in southern Africa than all Presbyterians in the United States. This past Sunday, the churches with the largest attendance in England in England and in France, the churches with the largest attendance were mainly black congregations. And about half of the churchgoers in London are African or African-Caribbean. And I saved the best for last. During this past week in Great Britain, there were at least 15,000 Christian missionaries, foreign missionaries, who were there hard at work evangelizing locals in Great Britain. 15,000 foreign Christian missionaries. Were they Americans? No. They're from Africa and Asia. Our family goes at Christmas. We'll usually go over to Hilton Head. And we were just checking my daughter into a place. And the, the gal behind the counter at the hotel, I said, Where's your accent from? She said, Russia. And I told her I was a, a pastor. And, and uh, she said, Well, my pastor back home is Korean. And when I told that to Sonny Kim, who's not here this morning, he said, I probably know him. I know the two pastors, and they're both Koreans in that particular part of that country where she was talking about. That's becoming the norm. That, that's the norm. So why am I saying that? Has God left us? Well, he, he's certainly doing more elsewhere. Uh, we're to pray for awakening. We're to evangelize. We're to be faithful. Uh, but let's not be discouraged thinking that what, only what we see is all that's happening in the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your patience. Uh, on a small scale, even down to each of us, you've been patient with us. Times that we have we've rebelled against you, just like those tenants. We've uh, despised your promises, your word, your son, uh, and yet you brought us to Repentance. And we, we thank you for that. We pray that, that we might be faithful to you, uh, that we would pray for awakening, that we, would, that we would see that you say that the fields are ripe and ready for harvest, and that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers uh, into the fields, that you'd raise up even from our own midst and uh, enable us to be witnesses for you where we are. Thank you for what you're doing in places we don't see and we, we rarely ever hear about it, and you're moving mightily there, redeeming people and planting churches. We thank you for Christ. Even as he told this parable, he was just days away from his own torture and death. And yet there was still compassion to express the patience of God, even with those who were, who were making him their enemy. And we know that his authority to do these things and to say these things comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen.